Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is creator of the foot-operated drum machine, David Packhaus. First of all, you probably never thought about this, but physical product might be the major label's downfall. A study by Components found that the most successful artists sold the most physical product, and the least successful ones relied on streaming only. With the resurgence of vinyl and CDs and even cassettes, artists have found that the profit margins of those items really make a difference in the money that they bring in. That actually has an influence on the rest of the industry as well. Every major streaming service is losing money except for one, and that's Bandcamp. The reason? It allows artists to sell physical products on the platform and, of course, takes a piece of the action as a result. This affects the major labels, too, but not in a good way. Labels are usually the first to jump on a new technology, but also the first to jump off. Take vinyl, for instance. As soon as cassettes became a big seller, the labels began to convert the pressing plants into cassette duplicators. Then a few years later, as soon as the CDs started to sell, they turned completely to CD replication, and the vinyl pressers and cassette duplicators were now nowhere in sight. When digital downloads became the new thing, all the labels sold off their CD plants, which, even if the sales were far less than before, were still a big revenue generator. Today we find that artists have no trouble making physical products on their own, and the labels just don't have any means to participate in many cases. Even if they do, their part of the deal is far less than when they own their own manufacturing plants. Likewise, streaming services are stuck in a business that isn't generating profits and with growth rapidly slowing. For once, artists have the right strategy if they embrace physical products. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new hitmaker engineer interviews, and much more. To get a copy, go to rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. That's rebrand, R-E-B-R-A-N-D dot L-Y forward slash recording handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember... You can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, a new service by BPB asked over 1,500 music producers about their thoughts on AI. Surprisingly, 73% of them thought that it was going to eventually replace them in some capacity. Despite their fears, 37% admitted that they were already using AI tools in their productions. It seems that most of these producers were creating some form of electronic music, and while it's true that that may be one of the genres that are most vulnerable to AI-generated production, experienced producers aren't really that afraid. If you've played with any of the AI composition and production tools, you know that most are either very limited or have a really steep learning curve. In fact, many AI-driven plugins allow for very little interaction with the AI at all. There are also many restrictions that most musicians aren't aware of, like poor audio quality, limitations on where the AI-generated material can be used. 
limitations on how it can be monetized, and even limitations on copyrights. And speaking of copyrights, the U.S. Copyright Office has already given guidance that a song that's 100% AI-generated can't qualify for a copyright. Plus, streaming services like Spotify and music distributors like TuneCore won't allow uploading of AI-generated content either. In the end, AI-generated music impresses consumers, but pros know that it only gets them part of the way there and needs a real human to hold its hand the rest of the way. It will only replace you if you're mediocre, but if you're good at what you do, you'll use it as a tool to make your music even better. My guest this week is David Packhouse, who may have the most interesting backstory of just about any guest I've had on this podcast. David is the CEO of Singular Sound and creator of the innovative Beat Buddy drum machine pedal, which gives guitar players easy control of drum loops and songs while they play live. But there's a lot more to his story. Prior to starting Singular Sound, David worked as a major weapons contractor for the U.S. Department of Defense, which is a big story in itself. In fact, his journey into arms dealing was the subject of the 2016 film War Dogs, where his character was played by Miles Teller. After that adventure filled with international intrigue, David pivoted back to music and started Singular Sound thanks to an extremely successful crowdfunding campaign. Besides the Beat Buddy, Singular also makes looper pedals and controllers, all with the performing musician in mind. During the interview, we spoke about navigating the dark world of arms dealing and how international politics plays a part, the key behind his super successful crowdfunding campaign, why Beat Buddy has become the ultimate drummer in a pedal, and much more. I spoke with David via Zoom from his office in Miami. You've led a very interesting life so far. (laughs) Thank you. So I can't wait to hear about it, as well as your products, because they're very cool as well. It's funny because I was looking at Beat Buddy and Arrow, and I immediately sent it off to a friend of mine who's gigging and said, this is perfect. This is just for you. And he agreed. Awesome. I, I, I appreciate that. Thank you very yeah. much. Before you get into that, you've led an interesting life. So let's go back. I would like to hear your background starting in music because I know you're a player and you seem to have taken a left turn somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I've taken more than a few left turns. And uh, I guess you could say eventually you come back to where you start, right? You take enough left turns. Yeah, I've I've always been a singer. My I like I've been a singer since I was a little kid, and uh, my mom is an incredible singer as well as a guitar player, and so uh, I would always sing with my mom. And my dad couldn't sing a note to save his life, so I I got very lucky that I got her genes as far as that goes. And uh, I remember my dad would love when he would put me to bed. He would ask because he really couldn't sing at all. He would ask me to sing the lullaby when I was like a little kid, like five, six years old. And um, he would know I was sleeping when my voice would trail off from singing the lullaby. (laughs) So that was, yeah, that was his thing. And so when I was 15 years old, uh, I remember hearing um, uh, Nirvana's uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time. And it just got it got me so riled up as a 15 year old boy, you know, that, that, that guitar, that twangy guitar that suddenly rips into distortion with the, with the drums. It was just like, you know, it just blew my mind. And I was, I thought that, man, that is so cool. I need to learn how to play that. I just need to, it just sounds so cool. 
And so uh, my mom played guitar. I asked her to play. And she was like, I have no idea how to play this style of music, but I could show you how to play Bob Dylan. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so, so she showed me how to play some open note chords. And then uh, I went online and learned how to play power chords, uh, which turned out to be a lot easier than most of everything else. But um, uh, that, you know, uh, you know, worked for hours on end uh, to get uh, Kurt Cobain's signature, like a uh, strumming pattern and his rhythm. And, uh, and yeah, and so that's how I got started in music. And of, of course, um, I had horrible stage fright when I was a teenager. I could never like, I remember when I had to like give a presentation in front of my class and my voice would like shake and, you know, my knees would like literally tremble. And uh, I eventually got over it by, um, because uh, I started hanging out with my friends on the beach. Uh, I, I grew up in Miami Beach. I was very lucky. I grew up in Miami Beach. Of course, when I was growing up, it wasn't as fancy as it is today. Uh, they, it really uh, became like super fancy and expensive. But when I was growing up, it was mostly retirees over there. So um, I used to hang out with my friends on the beach with my guitar and like we'd play songs, uh, mostly like grunge era stuff like Nirvana and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and all that. That was what was cool when I was growing up and um, in, you know, mid nineties, mid late nineties. And, um, uh, you know, I'd be singing and like, I'd have my eyes closed. And I remember like they started happening more and more often that people would start, you know, when they'd be walking down, this was at night, they'd be walking down the beach and they'd start suddenly like sitting down, like listening to, to me and my friends playing. And eventually there started like, there started to be like small crowds gathering around. And I just like kept my eyes closed because I was so nervous of like, you know, of, uh, of the crowds. But uh, eventually that acclimated me to uh, playing in front of a crowd. And, you know, now, now I have actually performed you know, for, uh, in real concerts and stuff, nothing like big or anything, but, uh, but uh, yeah, so that's that's been my uh, my musical evolution, I guess you could say. Okay, so I have to ask you this, and and you know what's coming. So how did you get into the arms business from there? Right, sure. Yeah, it's not. It was not directly. That's for sure. I was. I got into the arms business uh, for for people who are listening who don't know anything about me. There's there was a a, a Hollywood movie made about this part of my life uh, called War Dogs. And um, the way that story happened was I was uh, I was 22 years old and I was in college. I was studying chemistry at the time and, um, uh, you know, playing music on the side. But of course, I didn't have very high hopes that I could turn into a career as, uh, you know, music is notorious for that. Um, so I was studying chemistry because I've always had a knack for math and science and, and everyone told me, get a science degree, you'll have lots of job op opportunities and job stability and all that. And uh, I was also, I've also always been like a bit of a, of a like business hustler. So I've always had like little side businesses that I've been doing. So at the time I, I had figured out that uh, I could buy SD cards in bulk from China and sell them on eBay for quite a nice markup. And of course, SD cards are tiny, so it's easy to ship and store. And then a friend of mine uh, at, who was in the, he, his dad owned like a few nursing homes and he was getting into the nursing home supply business. Um, and he told me he buys from distributors. Um, and so if I could get him a better, he's like, you know, I know you buy SD cards from China. Maybe you can look for 
for the stuff I get, like like sheets and towels and stuff. And uh, and so if you can get a better price, you know, I'll buy from you. And so I started researching it and eventually got some decent prices from manufacturers overseas and started selling him bed sheets and and uh, towels. That part makes it into the movie. Of course, they they change things. I I never went you know, door to door selling bed sheets. It was always like, uh, I sold them before I even bought them. It was just, I was just being a broker. But um, uh, so anyway, I was doing this and, you know, making a, a you know decent, comfortable amount of money while I was studying chemistry in college. And I bumped into my old friend, Ephraim Deveroli, uh, who's played by Jonah Hill in the movie. And Ephraim, I had known Ephraim when we were teenagers, uh, when, I was actually four years older. I am four years older than him, but uh, we met in in the movie. They say we're the same age, but I'm actually four years older. Uh, in we met in synagogue because we're both our both of our families are uh, Orthodox Jews, and so we would go to synagogue on the Sabbath. And I don't know if you know anything about Orthodox Jews, but they pray for long periods of time. And, and uh, as teenage boys, we were not particularly interested. And so we kept on sneaking out of the synagogue and hanging out on the basketball courts and with uh, the other, uh, you know, uh, rebels of, of the synagogue. And um, so we kind of got to know each other. I had friends who were two years younger than me. They found him entertaining. He was like a little prankster. He'd love playing pranks on people. So he uh so so they kind of brought him into into our friend group and that's how we got to know each other uh but when he was i think when he was 16 years old he got kicked out of his uh, out of his school we didn't go to the same school we went to different schools but we both went to private jewish schools and um and religious schools so uh he got caught uh smoking weed and uh so they kicked him out of school and his parents decided, well, if you're not gonna take school seriously, you're gonna join the workforce and see what it's like out there in the real world. So they sent him over to his uncle who lived in LA. His uncle owned this big uh, pawn shop uh, in South Central LA in a big warehouse. And uh, he had him working in the in the warehouse, hauling boxes. And then he started putting him on the sales team, selling to people over the phone. And he got obsessed as a 16-year-old boy guy. He got obsessed with guns because his uncle also sold, you know, pawn shops tend to sell uh, handguns and various guns that people sell. So he got obsessed with guns, started learning all about guns, uh, researching them. He found uh, these like online uh, gun trading uh, websites. They're called gun, the gun boards. And uh, so he started realizing, hey, he could he could buy this gun here and sell it there and make a margin. Of course, he was still 16. So everything was under his uh, uncle's name. And his uncle was also selling to the local to the LAPD and to the California State Police. Uh, and so his uncle was bidding on government contracts, which is how the, the government buys things. They they don't just go to the store and buy things generally, especially if it's a large amount. They have to put it up for bid. And uh, so they'll post on their website what they want to buy. And then different companies can can submit their bids and whoever has the lowest price wins the contract. And so he started uh, helping his uncle with these contracts and uh, worked for him for about two years. Uh, when he was 18 years old, he had a falling out with his uncle. He claims, uh, Ephraim claims that his uncle uh, you know, cheated him out of $70,000. His uncle claims that Ephraim cheated him out of seventy thousand dollars. So you know, I yeah. believe both of them—they're both scumbags. So <laughs> uh, Ephraim ended up 
cheating me out of millions of dollars as well as many other people. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> so, and his uncle is also well known for uh, various shady practices in business. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, go on either side uh, in that argument. But um, anyway, so he came back to Miami and um, he uh, took over. He was actually still, he was about to turn 18. He was still 17 and change. And so he uh, took over his, one of his dad's businesses uh, called AEY Inc. His dad had only been using it for, uh, for doing some basic label printing business. It was actually lying dormant for a few years. And so he took over the company and, um, and registered it with the federal government. And this was in 2004, right after the Iraq invasion. And so the U.S. was buying all sorts of things to, because the United States went into Iraq and bombed it and took over. And then it was trying to build, um, you know, the government was trying to build a, a, a functional country, a functional democracy. The idea was that then the United States can leave. And part of that whole build, uh, nation building process was arming the the local police and army with with weapons and various other gear and so they're putting out these massive uh requests for quotation these uh, um you know these bids uh, uh out on the site and he started bidding on these contracts and there was literally like a tr trillion dollars going out on this so he started winning these contracts started doing really well and about a year after that, we bumped into each other in Miami and he asked me, he's like, hey, you know, what you're doing these days? And and I told him about my SD card business and the and the bed sheets and the, you know, the towels business. And he's like, oh, you know, that's actually, you know, what you're doing is actually pretty similar to what I'm doing. You know, you, you look for suppliers overseas, you arrange logistics, you figure out licensing, you, you know, negotiate contracts, et cetera. It, it's more or less what I'm doing but I bet I'm making way more money than you. So uh, you should come work with me. I could actually use a smart guy I can trust that, uh, you know, I've been looking for a partner. So you should come work with me. We'll make a lot of money together. And I told him, well, uh, how much money have you made? Right. <laughs> yeah. And he says, I'll tell you, but only to inspire you. I'm not, it's not because I'm bragging. Okay. And he opens up his laptop and he shows me his bank account. And he logs into his Bank of America bank account. And I see in his bank account, he has $1.8 million in cash. And he was 18 years old at the time. And I knew that his parents did not give him his money, that money. You know, like he, like I knew his family, like there's no way that his parents just handed him $2 million. They didn't even have $2 million to hand him. So, so I was like, wow, this guy knows he knows a business and he's doing way, way, way better than I'm doing in my businesses. Not that I was doing badly, but it was nothing like this. So I said, well, uh, you know, that's, you seem like you know what you're doing. So I'm in, let's do this. And um, so then we got into the, into the business. He showed me how the federal contracting system worked. Uh, started teaching me about, you know, the various uh, procedures and, and the restrictions and all these things that you had to, to know and to do. And, and uh, I started actually initially working on fuel contracts because he was already doing the arms. So he wanted to expand the business into a new area. Uh, my first contract that I won was in, uh, was for 50,000 gallons of propane that I sold to the U.S. Air Force in Wyoming. 
um, made a nice $8,000 on it, which was not bad for, mm-hmm. you know, like a week or two of work. Um, and uh, then started working on some other contracts and uh, started taking, he had, he was winning so many, con- he was really good at this. He was also like a workaholic uh, maniac. I mean, he was completely obsessed with money, couldn't think of anything else, literally worked 18 hours a day, every day. Uh, you know, the second you wake up, he's on, on the phone. He takes phone calls in the bathroom. I mean, like everything, like he was like a real obsessive. And, and so he started handing me arms contracts that he didn't have enough time to work on to fulfill. He's like, like for, I think the first arms contract I worked on was, it was kind of interesting actually, because it was, um, like old weapons for, for special forces. So the, so the United States, uh, likes to train U.S. special forces on many different types of weapon systems because when they get sent out to these, uh, co- you know, these countries to do missions, sometimes they have to use the weapons that they find in the field, and oftentimes those weapons are outdated, obsolete, you know, made by, you know, foreign countries, and so they like to train them on as many weapons as possible that they can get. So. He had this, he had won this contract to get like, I think 150 different types of like small arms. Uh, and it like ranged, like it was, there was a huge range of uh, uh, like everything from like World War II era, like uh, like Nazi uh, handguns to, uh, to, to Soviet stuff to like everything. And I had to go in and uh, search for, um, uh, for these weapons. Uh, they were like, um, and they were very difficult to find uh, some of them because they, they were rare. So that was a lot of work and he didn't want to do that work. So he handed that to me to, to, uh, to take over. So that was my first entry into, into the weapons business and uh, worked on a few other things. And then uh, eventually we won, we won this contract that uh, we became infamous for uh, that was, uh, it was the biggest contract by far that we had won. And um it was uh, it was uh, also one of the biggest, I think, small arms contracts in history. It was a contract the the Bush administration wanted to arm the Afghan National Army uh, with it uh, as much as possible before Bush left office because Bush thought that that uh, the next president would because Bush was really unpopular at the time, so. Uh, he thought the next president would be a Democrat, which he was right. Obama won, but he he also thought that the, a Democratic president would leave Afghanistan immediately and abandon the Afghanis to their fate, which he was wrong. I mean, it took all the way until like Biden to to actually leave Afghanistan. So so Bush uh, wanted to arm the Afghanis for like the next thirty years, uh, so they wouldn't so they'd have enough uh, uh, weapons ammunition to uh, to um, uh, you know, to fight off uh, the various groups that were trying to take over. And uh, so they put out this contract and they had, they had in, in Iraq, they had split these large contracts into like many, many small contracts and it turned into a huge logistical headache for them. So they decided to make it just one big contract for Afghanistan to just like avoid the logistical headache. So they put out this bid and we ended up winning it. Uh, we beat like huge fortune 500 companies like general dynamics and atk systems these are multi-billion dollar publicly listed companies uh we managed to beat them and we won it was a uh we had the lowest price by far apparently and uh our the our price was 300 million dollars that was the lowest price (laughs) yeah 
It was massive. It was like 30 different items, uh, everything from pistol ammunition to tank rounds to anti-aircraft rockets. Uh, so it was a massive, massive contract. And uh, uh, we started uh, delivering on that. Uh, and eventually we realized that some of the ammo that we were planning to deliver, uh, the ones, the ammo coming out of Albania had originally been manufactured in China uh, in the 70s. And so we weren't sure if it was legal because there's an arms embargo against China that was placed on China in, in 1989 uh, because of the Tiananmen Square massacre where uh, uh, the Chinese government massacred a, a bunch of uh, a bunch of protesters who were protesting for democracy. And so the U.S. put them on a on a on a arms embargo to punish them for that. Uh, but that was 1989. And this ammo was manufactured in the 70s while it was still legal. So we weren't sure whether and it was given to Albania as a gift uh, because the Albania and China uh, made an alliance in the 70s. Um, and so uh, uh, we weren't sure if it was legal or not. And our contract specifically said no Chinese ammunition can be delivered under this contract. So we mm -hmm. knew it went at the very minimum against the terms of our contract. Uh, so we thought at the time, you know, well, we have two options. We could either tell the U.S. government about it and say, hey, you know, we didn't realize that this ammo was going to be Chinese. We already got the, all the licenses for it. You know, all the logistics has all been arranged do you guys want us to deliver this or should we try to find another source? And they could have said, they, they could have said, oh, sure, yeah, we didn't mean to write no Chinese ammo, period. We should have meant to write no Chinese ammo that violates the terms of the embargo. Mm -hmm. And this stuff doesn't violate the terms of the embargo because it was given to Albania in the 70s before the embargo existed. Uh, or they could have said something along the lines of, well, you know, you guys bid on this contract with the explicit requirement that you can't bid Chinese ammo and all your competitors had to bid on this contract yeah. uh, with the same requirement. So it's not fair from, you know, for your competitors that you be allowed to deliver this. So we're going to take away this $300 million contract from you yeah. and, uh, and put it up for bid. And we were like, you know, maybe we shouldn't tell them about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was our mistake. This is fascinating, and I'm sure we can go on for another hour just on this, but I do want to get to what you're doing now. Yeah, no, me too. And I didn't know how much detail you want. That well, is the short version, by the way. <laughs> People can watch the movie, and I'm sure just someone making a movie about you is pretty unreal in itself yeah, as yeah. well. But tell me about Singular Sound, because you started, again, with your promotional hat on, with crowdfunding, or crowdfunding for it. So the way I uh, way I got into it, the way I went from the arms business to the music business was uh, actually came directly from it because I after the whole um, legal issues with uh, to, uh, with the arms business uh, shook out, I ended up getting. I was very lucky. I avoided going to prison. Uh, I pled guilty, which was a big reason why I, I avoided going to prison. And uh, but I did get sentenced to seven months of house arrest which, you know, after everyone's been through the lockdowns, that doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. but at the time, you know, I was playing a lot of guitar uh, to entertain myself and I really missed playing with the, with other musicians and people could visit me, but, I, but no drummer was going to bring over his entire drum set to my house just to jam. 
And even if he did, I was living in a relatively small apartment at the time. And my neighbors probably wouldn't have uh, liked it too much if there was a drummer playing in my apartment. So I bought a drum machine and I was using it to play beats and to, uh, to, to make beats and to play, uh, to play along to it. But every time I wanted, I'm, I'm a singer songwriter style of musician. So uh, mostly focused on like just playing covers and, and original songs and stuff like that. And so whenever I'd want to go from like the verse to the chorus and I'd want the beat to change up, um, I had to stop playing my guitar, press a button on the drum machine, go back to playing my guitar, totally interrupted the flow of the music, was very annoying. And so I thought, you know, I have guitar pedals. Why don't I have a drum machine in a guitar pedal so I could operate it with my foot while I'm playing guitar? And I was sure someone already made it. So I went online to, you know, to guitarcenter.com and I searched, you know, Sweetwater and, and on Google. And I looked for a guitar pedal drum machine and I couldn't find anything. The, the closest thing I found was that some loopers have like a, a, like some beat options built in, but it's meant more of like as a, as a, as a metronome really than anything. You can't really uh, do anything with the beat. The beat just is unchanging. Right. Yeah. So I thought, well, that doesn't really solve the issue because I want something I could change the beat as I go from verse to chorus, you know, mix it up to make it sound more live, more dynamic. And nobody was making anything like this. And so I asked my musician friends if they'd seen anything like it. Uh, and they all told me, well, I haven't seen anything like this, but if you find it, let me know, because I want one, because that sounds super cool. I would totally buy something like that. So I thought, well, if nobody's making it and everybody wants it, this is a huge opportunity. And uh, I did a patent search and I was shocked nobody had even patented the idea, which was totally shocking. And so it, it took me, eventually, it took me three years to get a functional prototype made. If for the first year, I hired the wrong person. They more or less pretended to work, didn't really do much. Then I got kind of discouraged and let it sit for a bit. And then I was like, what am I doing? I got to get this thing made. This thing is awesome. And so I have finally had found a good engineering team to actually build it uh, correctly. And that's how the Beat Buddy, my first product, uh, came into being. And um, of course, at the time, I didn't have enough money to, I had spent all my money on lawyers to keep me out of prison. So uh, I, did, I, was, I was pretty short on money and uh, I didn't have enough money even to pay the engineers for the full engineering uh, project, let alone to do manufacturing. And so the engineers, uh, the engineering team I found, I was so lucky, um, the lead engineer of the, of the company he, um, because I hired a, a like an engineering consultant company to do this, because I'm I'm not an engineer, I, I wouldn't be able to do this. And anyway, you need mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, software engineering. There's no no one person could make something like this. So, uh, the lead engineer of the company I hired turned was actually a drummer himself, and he told me he's like, you know, I have a lot of musician friends who are always asking me to jam with them. <laughs> And I don't have time to jam with them because I've got a very busy job. And so the, I know that they would love this. They would absolutely love this. And so I know this is going to do really well in the market. And anyway, our company really wants to get into, um, into uh, uh, the consumer product space. You know, until that point, they'd only mainly done work for for uh, uh, like like large companies, like utility companies and government uh, organizations. And they'd done stuff that was not consumer facing and they wanted to get to break into that market. 
And so they thought, oh, this is a really cool product. Uh, we should, this would really help us with our, our marketing. So they wanted to, they really were motivated to, uh, to do this product for me, but I told them I didn't have the money. Yeah. I didn't have all the money. I'd like, like I had a one fifth of them. I'd like 20% of what they wanted to build it. And so they told me, well, we'll make you a deal. Why don't you, cause you're planning on doing a crowdfunding campaign to raise money for the manufacturing. So why don't we build you a working prototype so you can do the crowdfunding campaign. You pay us the money you have right now as a deposit. And then when you're, when the crowdfunding campaign ends, you could pay us the remaining money that, that uh, uh, for the engineering. And if you don't raise enough money, then we'll do the manufacturing for you. And we'll take a cut on the manufacturing until everything is paid back. Uh, and so I thought, well, that's a pretty good deal. You know, they're wow. pretty much I'll taking, see. yeah, I was like, that's, they're, they're taking most of the risk here. I mean, of course I'm putting every penny I have, uh, you know, all my life savings on this too. So it wasn't like I wasn't taking a risk, but, um, but it made me feel much more comfortable because, you know, because they, if they don't get this thing to work, then they're on the hook and then they, yeah. then, you know, this not, they're not going to get paid. So uh, so it was a pretty good deal. Uh, and I, I don't think that that almost nobody will give you that kind of deal. I mean, that's a extremely rare. Yeah. Thing. You're lucky on that yeah, one. Yeah. I got extremely, extremely lucky on it. I've been very lucky in many aspects of my life. I, I feel very grateful, but, um, but the crowdfunding campaign was a real success though. Yes, it did very, very well. So yeah, I launched the crowdfunding campaign. It was actually on Indiegogo. Everyone thinks Kickstarter because that's what people know. But Indiegogo had better payment terms and I needed the money as it was coming in in order to pay for advertising to expand sales. And Kickstarter only gives you the money like three weeks after the campaign ends. Indiegogo gives it to you as it comes in. So that was a, a big uh, difference. And so that's why we ended up going with Indiegogo. And uh, it went very well. We ended up raising about $350,000 in a month which was enough to pay the engineering team off as well as to get the first production run started. And, uh, and yeah, and so that was, that did very well. Um, and the first, what, what was your goal? Uh, the goal was, uh, you know, I don't remember what our official goal was, but, uh, if we had raised a hundred thousand dollars, we would have been okay. So okay. it was, it, you know, it, it went, went many times over the goal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was. Uh... Well, let me ask you a question about that, because one of the things that's so important for a crowdfunding campaign of any type is if you don't already have a mailing list or an audience, it's really hard to get anybody to even take a look at it. So how did you go about it? Because I get the feeling that you didn't have any of that. That's a great question. And that's actually what I was about to start talking oh, about okay. uh, because I, I knew that that's what you were going to ask. Uh, yeah. It, crowdfunding campaigns by and large are successful or fail before they even start, right? Because people have this idea, oh, my campaign's going to go viral. It's going to get picked up by the media and, you know, millions of dollars are going to pour in and I'm, you know, not even going to have to put anything into it, right? That's usually not how it goes. Uh, usually you have to bring your own audience to the campaign in order for it to be successful. And journalists won't cover it until it's successful. So you won't really get cover any coverage there until you already have some momentum. And these days, actually, uh, journalists try not to cover crowdfunding campaigns anymore. So they're kind of moving away from it by and large. 
I think because there have been quite a few high profile failures where, uh, where there are very, these very large crowdfunding campaigns turn out not to end up, they don't end up delivering to the customers and lots of people uh, lose their money. And, and then, you know, people kind of blame the journalists for creating the hype. So journalists have been burned on this. So they try not to cover it at all anymore. So I think crowdfunding is losing a lot of its power in general uh, these days, though. I mean, it still can work and there are still successful campaigns, but it's not the same as it was when it was kind of ramping up about 10 years ago. So the way uh, the way that happened with with the Beat Buddy was this is actually quite amazing. Um, uh, so I made before the like about nine months before the campaign started, uh, I had made a demo video of the Beat Buddy. Now I made a demo video using a mock-up product because I didn't have a functional pro prototype, but I wanted to show how it would work and to explain it. And so I made this demo video and I put it on YouTube. I was in the middle of making a website and uh, I had put it on YouTube unlisted, right? Because I wasn't ready to publish it. And then I started getting like all these emails from people asking me about when's it coming out. And I was like, I hadn't even like, like the website was still in a very early phase, like I like very basic stuff. Like I had my email address on the website and pretty much it like the, the, the uh, video wasn't even published there. And so I was like, I was like, where are all these people coming from? And it turns out that even if your video on YouTube is unlisted, it'll still so show up, or at least it did back then. I don't know if they've changed their policy now, but it, it, it'll still show up in search results. Mm -hmm. So someone searched for like drum machine pedal or something like that, something relevant. And the video, even though it was unlisted, came up and then they posted it to the gear page forum. Oh boy. And yeah. yeah. And then people saw it on the gear page and they went crazy and they were like, this is so cool. And they started like, I got like 300 emails yeah. <laughs> from people. They're just like uh, asking me. And so I quickly finished up the website, you know, built a uh, email, like a mailing list collection uh, uh, widget into the website. And, uh, and people just started signing up. This is also, I, I also have to say I was very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time for a lot of this um, because at the time, it, uh, this was 2013, uh, Facebook was just starting to do advertising in a big way. So Facebook advertising at the time was extremely cheap uh, because not a lot of people were using it, but there were still a lot of people on Facebook and you could target people. And so I managed to, uh, to, uh, I think I had like a hit rate of something like 50 cents. Like I converted like 50 cents into an email signup, which is amazing and yeah, unheard of awesome. these days. Yeah. yeah. This doesn't happen anymore. And this was like niche, like a uh, uh, sign. These are industry, like music people signups, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, not, not general market. So, uh, so I ended up having about, I, if I recall correctly, something in the neighborhood of around 6,000 people signed up to the mailing list uh, by the time we launched the campaign. And uh, and so the first day of the campaign, we raised, like within the first 24 hours, we raised $70,000 of just from people from the sign-up. And that got the attention of some journalists, TechCrunch, is it, oh, Gizmodo, I've got on the poster behind me right there, a yeah, genius yeah. idea. They yeah. said it, not me. <laughs> yeah. So Gizmodo picked it up, TechCrunch picked it up and write, wrote about it. And that gave it a little bit more momentum. And 
eventually the campaign raised 350,000, which was uh, amazing. Is it in Guitar Center? No. Guitar Center, Sweetwater, uh, Sam Ash, all the major retailers. It's also on our website. If, if uh, anyone wants to buy our products, I highly recommend they get it from our website because, uh, well, we make the most money that way. And also we offer a uh, 10% discount uh, for people who sign up to our mailing list. So you can get a little discount. Well worth it. Well worth it. Okay. So you started with Beat Buddy and then you expanded. Yes. So we expanded. So after Beat Buddy came out, we have a forum, a very active user forum that people put up all their ideas and their requests. And uh, so the Beat Buddy, uh, you're able to uh, put your own songs on it. Like, and by songs, I mean beats. It's they're like beat like patterns. So there's like a verse beat, a chorus beat. There's there's fills. So if you tap the pedal, it does a drum fill, but it does a different drum fill every time. So there's several fills associated with it, each song part. Uh, if you hold it down, it does a transition. You let go, it goes to the next beat. So it has a transition fill. So there's these different like MIDI um, loops that have these different uh, functions. And uh, we package it all together as a Beat Buddy song, so which is what we call it, a Beat Buddy song, even though it's just beats, but it's a song structure. So uh, we created a, a forum and people get onto the forum and they sh they people started making their own beats, their own songs. And people started sharing like literally thousands and thousands of songs for people to download for free and put it on their beat buddy as well as people were making custom drum sets so you can change the drum set on the beat buddy so you could play like you know heavy metal song on hand drums or jazz on an electronic kit or something yeah. really interesting like that and so people started making their own uh hybrid kits people are like oh i want like an electronic kick but with an acoustic rest of the drum set you know stuff like that so or i want something that sounds exactly like the 808 so someone made an 808 kit and and uploaded it and so you can have your beat buddy you know, sound like an 808. Um, so uh, people started really sharing lots of content. And of course, along with that, they started making all these requests for new features. They, they're like, oh, I want to do double time. I want to do half time. I want to be able to adjust the, the tempo with like an expression pedal so I could slowly do a, a speed up and a slow down. You know, Ooh, I, I want a good idea. To, yeah. Yeah. I want to do like accent hits. You know, I want to not only be able to hit a button and do a crash, but I want to be able to hit a button and do a kick and a snare and a, and like a hi-hat and all these like, you know, to be able to like kind of play the drums with your feet and add additional uh, hits, you know, drum hits into it. And so there's so many different things. And they, of course, they wanted additional uh, MIDI functionality and and because they wanted it to work with their loopers and, and their other devices. And I realized, you know, people want so much, the Beat Buddy to do so much. There's no way that you could do it with the single pedal, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Now we do have a, a like a two button foot switch accessory that you can plug into the Beat Buddy that gives you additional functions. Uh, by default, it's a uh, the, the foot switch is a, uh, one is an accent hit. So you hit it and it does a, a cymbal crash, uh, which sounds cool, you know, along with your beat. And yeah. uh, the other button does uh, like a pause and pause. So you could do like a drum break and come back in. So that's really useful in a live situation. But people wanted a lot more than that. So I realized, you know, the only way we're going to have all this functionality is if you have like an external MIDI controller to uh, to control the beat buddy and give you all these other because, you know, you really, the whole point of the Beat Buddy is that it's hands-free. Um, so you can play your instrument 
while you're using it in a live situation. So uh, I started looking at MIDI controllers and they were all just such a pain in the butt to use. You know, they were like really complicated to program. They were generally by and large uh, low quality or like really big and clunky and uh, and just like really complicated, like some of them, like it almost felt like a, like a computer programmer designed it right? yeah. Yeah, <laughs> rather yeah, right. than, than a musician, um, which is what it, MIDI feels like in general, just the way they, you yeah. know, like they start, like the values start at zero, right? Instead yeah, right. of at one, right? right? So it's like, you know, you want 10 things. Oh, you have to do zero through nine. It's just yeah. not intuitive yeah, right. for like a, like a normal person. It's, that's how computer people think. So anyway. Uh, so I started getting these different MIDI controllers to experiment with it to see, you know, can we build in all these other features that people want? And I really hated using these MIDI controllers. They were just such a pain in the butt. And I thought, I, I can make a better MIDI, better MIDI controller than this. Uh, you know, why don't we have like screens above the above the buttons uh, so that it's not like a static you know, so you don't have to put like a piece of tape above the button and write with Sharpie what that button does. And, yeah, and yeah. if you have a screen, it could change functions when you, you know, press something, it'll, you know, you're different, like depending on whether the beat buddy stopped or whether it's playing, you may want different options. Cause like when it's stopped, you may want to like change to a different song when it's playing, you're not going to change to a different song. You may want to do pause and unpause, which isn't relevant, relevant when it's stop so yeah, yeah so depending on what state you're in what you're doing you want different functionality so that's how i came up with the idea for the midi maestro which is a midi foot controller with six buttons and it's got a uh, a screen above each one and you could and i we, another thing i realized from the forum is that people have a million and one ways of setting up their gear and they have a million and one different combinations of gear. And you, you, there's no way you're going to build one thing that's going to satisfy everything unless, unless, unless you make it customizable. So with the MIDI Maestro, we made it so you could program the functionality of the buttons with a smartphone app. So you could choose what MIDI commands you want sent from which button in which state. And then you could change up the, uh, the bank, so to speak, um, of the... Uh, the buttons and change their functionality. So you get a lot more functionality out of the six button uh, footprint um, pedal than you would from like a 12 button thing that you can't change the functionality out of the buttons. And it's also much easier to use because you see the name of, of what you're going to do. You don't have to memorize things. Uh, oh, in bank two, this button does that. Yeah, that yeah, right. that. yeah, it's just like, it's impossible to remember all that stuff. So that's how the MIDI Maestro came about. Then uh, people also were asking me for all these functionalities to use the Beat Buddy with their loopers. A lot of looping artists were using the Beat Buddy and because uh, the Beat Buddy has MIDI capability. And uh, in, in full disclosure, when I first thought of the idea for the Beat Buddy, I'm, I'm like a, a relatively uh, low what's the term? Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a complicated, like I'm a, a musician. I'm not a technical musician. I'm more of just like a singer songwriter. I just want to be able to sing my songs and, and that's pretty much it. So yeah. like, I was never like super into gear, but when I had the idea for the beat buddy and like the people on the gear page, they were like, Oh, does this thing have MIDI? Because if it doesn't, it's just a toy. And if it does, it's going to change live performance forever. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> and so I thought, wow, that's a pretty big difference. So I better look into this MIDI thing. I didn't even know what it was at the time. 
And so I asked the engineers, I'm like, hey, uh, can we put MIDI in it? And they're like, oh, yeah, we could we could do a port for that. And, and you know, uh, it was not that big of a deal to add that in. So we added that in and that has enabled it to just be so much more than it would have been without it. So people were connecting the BeatBuddy to their loopers and uh, they wanted to have all these new functionalities, you know, like when you change song parts, can it like trigger the loop change and and things like that. And so I started buying loopers to experiment with it. And I realized I'd never really used loopers before, but I realized this was, you know, a lot of these loopers are a real pain to use. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. they're very limited. They're, you know, and one of my biggest pet peeves at the time was that I realized that, uh, especially for someone who is not such like a, a proficient musician, and I would not claim to be a, a great musician, you know, as someone who's not a, a, a particularly proficient musician, like if you have a long loop, it's easy to lose your place in the loop, especially yeah. if it's a bit repetitive. You don't know when that loop is coming back around. And that makes a big difference when you're like laying, you want to lay down another loop to go with the first loop or when you're, you want to change, you know, the loop or to stop it, you know, you don't even know where it's going to stop. Is it going to go for another form measures or is it going to stop right there? Yeah, so yeah. there's like no visual indication of, of the, of the loop for the vast majority of loopers. And so I had the idea, I'm like, well, why don't, why don't these loopers have a screen and it could show the waveform just like a DAW would on your computer and nobody else was doing it. And I thought, well, if nobody else is making a looper with a screen. That is something that everyone's going to love. Yeah, and yeah. so, so that's how I got the idea for the Eros looper. And so, and of course we've built the Eros to a lot more than just the, the screen, the visual display. We built it so it has uh, six song parts, so you can have six different sections of the song. Each set, each section can have up to six individual independent tracks. Each track has unlimited overdubs, uh, and so it's, it's, it's very you know, cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we built in the wheel, so you can have yeah. uh, hands-free mixing of the different layers. And yeah. so it's it's quite extensive. It's funny because I the first thing I thought was, you know, it's not that far of a jump between the beat buddy and a looper because they're basically doing the same thing it's just now you you have recorded sounds versus the drum sounds it seemed like a natural that you would do that yeah yeah it was the the beat buddy really is more of a um it, it's kind of like a midi uh like playback machine yeah right right because traditionally drum machines were designed to compose beats and people use them as like a as a, a what do they call it a um, an accompaniment device as a secondary thing, you know the I, I, I yeah. initially it was you know they just want to make beats and then really people are like oh yeah I could use it I could play along to that but it wasn't really designed as an accompaniment device so with the beat buddy it's the opposite it's primarily uh, an accompaniment device and uh, I realized you know most people aren't going to be making beats on the fly or at all as far as most guitar players go they sure, aren't, sure. aren't even interested in making beats so you can and there's so many great beat making software out there uh so why why reinvent the wheel um primarily the beat buddy is a accompaniment device a live performance device and you can make all the beats you want on your computer or just download someone else's beats or you know and of course we started making our own professional uh level content as well and and so we've been selling quite a bit of that. Uh, so we make uh, downloadable content of both beats as well as new drum sets uh, that we uh, that we sell on our website as well. That's been doing really well. 
Very cool. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you're doing great. We can go on and on on this, but last question for you. Yes. So you've been through a lot business-wise. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? Right. It is so much great business advice that uh, that uh, people have said and, and uh, that I've learned the hard way as well. Uh, but if I had to pick something, and this is going to, I'm sure this is going to sound cliche just because it's, I'm sure a lot of other people have said it, but it's so true, is that one of the most important things that you could do, I think in life in general, but in business uh, in particular, is to do something that you enjoy, right? Because yeah. if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to put as much effort into it as you, sh- as you should. And if you don't put as much effort into it as you should, you're, you're generally not going to be as successful in it or successful at all. And it was something that I learned the hard way because uh, during the, the arms business, we did get very successful until we were not, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> until it all came crashing down. But I realized while I was doing that business that I really hated it. And uh, people, you know, nowadays they're like, oh, there was a movie about you. It was so cool. It must've been so cool to go through that experience. At the time, it really sucked. I mean, it was just a very unpleasant uh, situation. It was a very draining. It was extremely, extremely hard work, but not only that, it was to me anyway, it was uh, extremely boring. It was just like a lot of emails, a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of follow-up, a lot of nitty gritty details that I didn't really care about. I was never really into guns in the first place. I never even owned a gun until until I had a falling, the falling out with my partner and I thought he might hire someone to kill me. And so I thought it would be better I own a gun. That was the first gun I owned. Hmm. Um, but uh, so I never really cared about guns. And so it didn't really interest me. And so because of that, I think I found the business itself to be just very draining and and depressing. And then when I left that business and I got into my current business and I I just realized, I'm like, wow, I actually love what I do now. Like, I love the people I work with. They're such awesome people. I like hanging out with them. I love the actual process of the work. I love coming up with the ideas. I love troubleshooting problems. And like, even the hard parts are enjoyable because I like what I do and I feel good about it. And like, I've gotten, I've gotten such heartwarming letters, which, you know, it it just goes such a long way. One of my favorite letters I've gotten was from this uh, uh, older gentleman. I think he was like, he told me he was like 78, I think years old, uh, in his late seventies. And he, he wrote me a letter, a handwritten letter in the mail. And he told me that he had stopped. He hadn't played uh, his guitar in 40 years and he uh, saw the video for the Beat Buddy, and he realized that he had stopped playing guitar when his uh, friend, his drummer, had quit, and he had no one to play with, and so he just didn't, and it just wasn't that fun to play alone anymore. And so he, and he said he bought a Beat Buddy, and he picked up his guitar for the first time in forty years, and it's one of the greatest sources of joy in his life right now. And he had to write me to thank me, and I was like, wow, that's like you know, that, that like brings a tear to my eye, you know, like, it's just like, so, so amazing. It just makes me like, you know, really, it, you know, to, it, it just makes me feel like I'm doing some good in the world. And and that's just, you know, there's nothing greater than that. And, and, you know, so I would say to do work that is meaningful and enjoyable is, is I think the, the number one thing that, that you should look for in, in your work.
You can find out more about David and Beat Buddy at SingularSound.com. That's Singular Sound, S-I-G-U-L-A-R, Sound, S-O-U-N-D, SingularSound, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.